Um, hey, Sean, do we want is camera going on? Or are we doing this? No, we can do it. We can. We we'll just say maybe just say hi and stuff like the audio quality is better without the camera. I think okay. in terms. So and, and you know none of us are none of us are models. So I don't know that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> maybe Zach. Zach may qualify for more than I do anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, let's. Uh, um, I think I think we'll get better audio if you don't mind. Unless you want yep. to be on video, we can put it on YouTube. But uh, no, either. no, no, no. Whatever you guys normally do, audio yeah, is great. That's what we, we did the first few with video. And we found the, the sound wasn't as good, so we're trying to we're trying to just maximize. We're still in the uh, we're you're you're episode twelve, I think. So we're still, you know, we're still uh, we're still killing people and making mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, that sounds great. Yeah, you know, I like totally understand. When you learn how to do surgery, it takes about fifty operations before you get proficient at it, and so it's kind of like, well, sorry about the side effects, guys. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop out a video, and then, okay. I don't know, Zach, if you want to do the same. Yeah, can All you guys right. see me right now? I think I should be off. I can't see you. Okay, no. I can hear it. I know what you look like. <laughs> I just got done, man, crushing about three pounds of steak. I had to hurry, man. <laughs> You're feeling it. Feeling up for... in your belly. No, I feel great. I feel satisfied. I feel a little, maybe even a little intoxicated, meat intoxication. <laughs> Yeah, you still ben, trying to any, add? Ben, let me ask you a question before we go. Is there anything you specifically want to hit or don't want to talk about? I, I know you because you, you, I know you're, you, I know you got the insulin and the glucagon and the gluconeogenesis and the brown fat and all that stuff. I know that's your wheelhouse. I, you know, I, I know yeah. you pick your brain on a lot of that stuff if you don't mind. But is there anything else you think that needs to be chatted about so we can make sure we hit? Yeah. yeah well, no, I, I, I'm comfortable with pretty much any topic uh, within the realm of metabolism. Metabolism. You know, maybe one thing that would be—I don't know whether you guys have talked about this yet—but I'm—I'm continually disappointed that people fear protein because of what I consider a misplaced fear of mTOR activation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm surprised that the way that conversation goes, uh, where people just hear mTOR and think cancer, and, and boy, we are selling cancer short. If it was just so one-sided as mTOR activation, well, boy, we'd be done. We would have solved this long ago. And in fact, I don't know of a single cancer that's an mTOR mutation. Um, well, I mean, you know, then you you would look at every lion in the wild and expect them to be riddled with tumors. You know, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Just, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, if it, you know, they're, they're saying it's conserved all the way down to the eukaryotes. You know, it's like, well, yep. if it's uh, if it's conserved in all cells, why aren't these? Or yeah. these heavy, heavily meat-eating carnivorous animals riddled with cancer. So that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we can definitely talk about it. You know, I think something Ron Rosedale is, you know, he's a big fan of, and yes, I, I agree. I think, I think I said when when tested in actual humans, that theory doesn't seem to hold up. You know? Yep, so, that's right. Anyway, well, let's get going, man. Uh, yep. Zach, you want to? Once you, Zach, you want to introduce Ben or Ben? You, you go ahead, Zach, and then we'll just start shooting the breeze. Cool. Yeah, I've got us rolling here, so we can we can get going. Um, yeah. So for Today's podcast, we're on episode 13, and we have a, a really cool guest here to share some of his insights with us. Uh, it's Dr. Ben Bickman. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, guys. Thanks. I'm glad to be invited to talk about all things metabolism. Yeah, it's great having you on, Ben. I mean, you've been kind of shaking up the uh, low-carb keto world you know, over the last year or so with some really neat talks and some new, neat concepts, so I think... Are, are they're great that we're getting this stuff out here where are you're out in utah is that right is that where you're at you're calling from today that's where you're based out of yep i am yep up in the rockies so we have the utah is one of the best kept secrets in the u.s you know we can within the same day be skiing snow skiing and then go south and be water skiing at lake powell i mean it, it's a pretty incredible place 
Man, I love Utah. I tell you, here's a funny, this is totally unrelated, but it's a funny story. So I was, when I was back in the Air Force, I was stationed at Luke Air Force Base in Phoenix, Arizona, right? I was living in Surprise, and I was doing these Highland games, you know, where you run around in a, in a kilt and you throw yeah. things, right? And so there yeah. was a contest up in, uh, just Midway, of, maybe. No, it was just, it was in Thanksgiving Point, which was okay. near, yeah. uh, I think, Payson, I think. No, uh, no, it's Lehigh. Lehigh, yeah, Lehigh, yeah, 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 Lehigh. So I was up going up there, and I'm like, I'm just going to drive. And it was about a nine-hour drive, and I said, I don't want to fly, I want to drive, because Utah's so scenic, and, and it was. It, it was just is. a beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous drive. But I was in the Air Force, and, I, and I'd been off for a couple of days, and I hadn't shaved. I was wearing a T-shirt and some scruffy jeans, and I drove up there, and I hadn't eaten all day because I was just – I was flying up there, and I stopped at a gas station, got like a little bit of water to drink, a few peanuts. This is back when I was eating, you know, uh, more just regular food. And yeah. I get up to pay, I get up to Lehigh, and I get to Thanksgiving Point, and there's a nice restaurant called the the some, something table. I can't remember what it's called, mm-hmm. but I go in there, and I look like a scruffy guy late at night, and I walk in, and they look at me like I'm a homeless guy, and they seat me, and I order a big steak, right? Yeah. And literally. I mean, they bring it to me. I'm so hungry. I just like inhale. I'm the only guy there. I didn't care. So I'm literally inhaling the food. Yeah. And this is how nice the people in Utah were. And when the meal was over, the waitress, I go, can I get the bill? She goes, oh, no. The couple across the way saw how hungry you looked, and they paid for your dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so I like the people in Utah. Yeah. Man. I got some good folks there. So I got a free free big steak dinner you know, way back yeah, when. Like that, so. that's, part of the, that's part of the advertising pitch for tourism. Come get a free meal. <laughs> Absolutely. That was great, man. So let's talk about – let's talk a little bit about let, – let's just get right to it. Protein. Everybody's scared of it. Gluconeogenesis, it's evil. Why do we have gluconeogenesis? What's the point? Is protein going to kill us? Should we should we fear it? Should we be running from it? What's your take on that? Yeah. So, in fact, Sean, how how neat it is that you're the one I'm talking about this with at the moment. Where, in a way, when I it was part of what you're doing that I think planted the seed. I can't put my finger on one exact moment in time that got me thinking about this. But when I was invited to give a talk at Low Carb Breckenridge uh, again last year to do it this earlier, just a few months ago. Um, it was, you know, carte blanche. I could talk about any topic I wanted, and I didn't have enough of my own new data to look at mitochondrial uncoupling with insulin versus ketones like I'd spoken about the year before. And, and so it was more um, seeing this, the rise of the, the carnivore, and uh, so to speak, and, and the fact that these were people who seemed to just be simply put thriving physically, and and then uh, viewing the kind of the the paradox of that against kind of current um, pop culture versions of ketogenic diets, which which was this, um, which is this a general kind of fear of protein and this sort of bizarre obsession with chasing ketones to the point that people are just drinking oil and considering that a meal, and and I thought it was these sort of the confluence of these events seeing. Um, meat eaters thriving in the human pop- in human populations, and then um, seeing people that are so determined, doggedly pursuing ketosis that, in fact, I considered them unhealthy, and 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 so my focus for that um, sort of academic exercise in preparing a talk was what is really happening when we're eating protein, and it was so insightful, and and it was really it came together, it crystallized when I found a few research articles from some of the diabetes legends like Cahill and, and um, McGarry and um, 
Roger Unger and, and finding, in fact, that there were very pronounced differences in insulin responses when someone would eat protein in states of high-carbohydrate-fed diets or low-carbohydrate-fed diets. But you mentioning gluconeogenesis is, of course, important because that is at the crux of it. And while, um, while low-carb uh, adherence say gluconeogenesis like it's a four-letter word, and because I'm in Utah, I'm not going to say it, um, they, we, we in fact need gluconeogenesis. That is what keeps the carnivore alive, and um, that is what determines the insulin response. In short, if someone needs gluconeogenesis, if that is a phenomenon that we need to have occurring to provide glucose, then insulin response to the protein will be low. In fact, uh, non-existent. There is no insulin response, at least in these studies in the dogs that I cited. And, and, and dogs are relevant, mind you. I think that canines may have the closest GI tract to humans across the animal kingdom. You guys might know more about that than I do. I think that's right, though. Um, and yet, in contrast to the low-carb-fed person, where protein elicits no insulin response, uh, in a high-carb-fed state, where there's no need for gluconeogenesis, then there's no fear of increasing insulin, which would potently inhibit gluconeogenesis, and thus there is, in fact, quite a substantial insulin response to the protein, to the same protein, just a different dietary situation, low-carb versus high-carb. And that was the, that became the sort of the crux of my message that I shared, um, and that I felt was important because it provided people with um, a justifiable respect and appreciation for protein and what I what I hoped and hope that meant was that people could appreciate just eating real food and not drinking oil for three meals a day yeah I mean it's like you know you go back to the uh, you know the cave paintings in Lascaux France and you see all those pictures of those you know uh, exogenous ketone containers and MCT oil <laughs> yeah. things littered all over the ground you know no yeah. I mean I'm obviously I'm being facetious but you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and I think you know Ted Naiman talks about that. You know, you gotta you gotta get your protein in. You know, I think that's the first thing. You, you know, and then and then if you you know you play with your macros to, you know, get where you need to be. And to me, it's a ribeye steak <laughs> gets you there pretty damn well. In yeah, my that's view. right. And yeah. I think I think meat checks the boxes, um, where you're you're getting the micronutrients that you need. Certainly, and in fact, I all people love to focus on micronutrients. And my sentiment is, if your macros are in line, your micros will be too. But uh, it, it, so meat, it has what I consider the sort of perfect recipe of uh, even ketogenesis. If someone's obsessed with ketones, um, where you have the carnitine, which you need to shuttle the fatty acid into the mitochondria in the first place. And there are states in humans of, of insufficient carnitine, where carnitine becomes the bottleneck. And I worry when people are avoiding meat, and yet they're obsessing over their ketones, well, you're going to have a hard time making ketones if you can't get the fatty acid in the mitochondria in the first place. And you have to have carnitine to do that. It is the shuttle carrying it in. And that Im that will impact you know, to 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 probably bring some interest in from Zach's side. That will impact uh, performance and probably in in a in a way you know sports performance. I mean, I would assume so. If we're, if we're messing up with our metabolic machinery, you know, with sports performance is one of the big stresses to that system to make sure it's running well. So, yeah, Zach, any comments? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's all really interesting. I was uh, actually kind of playing around with some stuff with this most recent training block I've done and, you know, partly due to um, Dr. Baker's influence, I guess, where uh, I stopped really monitoring protein intake, but rather just focused on trying to get 
kind of at minimum during my, my bigger training blocks, at least two pounds of red meat in per day. Um, I, and ironically enough too, I was, I, I go off and on with this cause I'm not too really concerned about being in ketosis versus coming out of ketosis. I just want to be um, yep. fat adapted enough so that I know I can get away with not fueling as much as I need to, or fueling as much as maybe someone on a high carb diet would need to. Um, but what I was kind of realizing was, uh, when I, I started checking my ketone levels a little, a little more just to kind of get an idea of what was going on. And I was finding that like, I, it was, it certainly wasn't bumping me out of, out of ketosis at all. It was, it seemed like I was more or less kind of on that, that edge of just barely being in ketosis, but I could very easily come out and then very easily get back in. And, um, you know, like, like, like Sean was saying, when you have like, you know, a ribeye or a steak that is more or less like 70% fat and 30% protein, you're certainly going to go above the recommended protein levels if you're eating two plus pounds of that a day. Um, but it hasn't seemed to be, be an issue in any, any regard in terms of bumping me out of ketosis, assuming that would even be the goal. Yeah. In fact, I like that you're mentioning uh, sort of slipping in and out of ketosis. I am convinced that so much of that in, in any low carb individual, in your case, your case is a good example where uh, being in and out of ketosis is probably not so much a matter of how much are you making, which is what people are always obsessing over and then thus drinking oil. Um, but it, it could be more a matter of how much are you using where we, we need to appreciate that the, uh, we're making ketones to be a viable fuel for the body. Any cell with the mitochondria will, will gladly take in the ketones and use them for fuel. Uh, very, very relevant, of course, in these aerobic conditions that you're so often in, um, I, I mean exercise-wise. But when people are kind of bragging and posting pictures, here my ketones are at 4 millimolar, 5 millimolar, I'm thinking, what a waste. You know, uh, that All that means is you're making so much that you're not using them. You know, you're, mm -hmm. you're sort of you've pushed your body. You're either, you're either fasting yourself too much, or you're drinking too much oil. But to me, having ketones, you know, in this lower range, um, is is just fine. All that means is you're using them. This is a fuel source. And so often when people get done exercising and they say, "Ah, oh, my extra my insulin must have bumped up because my ketones are lower post exercise than they were pre," which absolutely can happen. It's not that insulin had anything to do with it. It's just that you used a lot of ketones while you're exercising, especially if you're very fat adapted. And that's fat and ketones, but mostly fat, have become a primary source of fuel at all intensities. Yeah, and you know that's that's something else that I think is becoming or being more noticed now too. Is like there's definitely a kind of a, a difference between someone following a ketogenic diet for health reasons or uh, you know something other than athletic performance versus someone who's um, using it as a as a as a way to kind of improve their their fuel substrate utilization, and uh, I know with uh, the faster study that Dr. Volek put on years ago, now it was um, I think some people were kind of surprised at the the low level of ketosis that some of those athletes were coming in, especially like after the workout itself. Yeah, um, the assumption was I, th I know for me specifically the night before I had like a steak, and then they had a pretty strict protocol going forward there where the high fat cohort got like, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like, um, 60 to 70 grams of basically like pure fat right before a three hour treadmill session. So like my thought was my ketones were going to be through the roof at the end of that three hour treadmill session, but they, it, they more or less kind of normalized. They, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, and, and I, I was, I was going to ask you too, if that has any 
kind of role in uh, some of these other ways that people are testing their ketone bodies? I know they when people use like those urine strips, they sometimes they get these high levels of ketones when they first start because their body doesn't, I guess from what I understand, uh, is, isn't really utilizing them efficiently yet. So they're kind of getting excreted in the urine, but then once they kind of get moving along, they realize that those, those test strips aren't registering a very high ketone level anymore as the body kind of, like you said, gets more, more used to actually utilizing it. Yeah. Yeah. So this does, uh, so if I, uh, this involves a little bit of speculation on my part, but, uh, because I, I don't know that there are data to confirm this, but yeah, when you're measuring ketones with breath monitoring or urine strips, you are measuring acetone, which is the irreversible loss of a ketone. I mean, that's what the ketone gets turned into when it is now destined to leave the body. It has uh, That's the irreversible biochemical reaction. Once it's turned to acetone, it is leaving. It's on its way out. And, and so I think as someone is j- jumps into low-carb, their body is adapting, and part of that adaptation is developing the uh, activating the machinery for mitochondrial biogenesis and all of the processes, the enzymes involved w- contained within the mitochondria, but basically wiring the body to now use this new fuel, uh, which which has previously pretty much been unused. And you think about the average American or Western-fed individual, they can pretty much go their entire lives with, you know, barely registering ketones at any moment because of how frequently they're eating and, and what they're eating. So so there is that necessary adaptation. So yeah, ketones would be, uh, acetone, especially this waste version of the ketone, would be higher at the initial end, or, or sorry, at the beginning um, of, of adopting a, a ketogenic state or just, I'll say, low-carb. And and then over time, as the person has now developed the enzymatic machinery to use this as a fuel, it makes perfect sense that now the waste version of the ketones would be going down simply because the person is keeping more of the ketone to use for fuel, which, of course, makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah, well, it's one of the – I'm – I'm happy to say I've never spent even one one cent on monitoring my ketones. I, I saw from the beginning, I was like, what is the endpoint I'm trying to get after? And it yep. wasn't what my blood levels were. And so yep, good for you. I think it's I think it's an interesting concept and it's maybe fun to do. But I think, you know, we have a lot of people that literally religiously monitor these. I think it becomes almost a neurosis and it's kind of weird to see. Let's circle back to insulin because I think there's some great things we can talk about there. So you said there's a difference between ins- when the way the body produces insulin in response to carbohydrate you know, via things like in, in, the incretin receptors is different than how we have it done in response to, to protein. With, and there's certain proteins that tend to be insulinogenic. And you said that that can be changed based on the, the baseline diet. Can you, can you delve into that a little bit more, Ben? Yeah, you bet. So, re, yeah, so specifically, um, now we can kind of circle back to incretins and, and, and discuss that. Um, uh, but with regards to just very specifically protein consumption, um, the body is clever. Uh, it is, of course, designed to just really run optimally, and uh, in in any condition, and that includes a low carb diet. But because there are cells that have an absolute reliance on glucose as a fuel, the body, um, and that's not the brain, mind you. Uh, um, there are other cells, like red blood cells, being the most common or the easiest example. They have an absolute reliance on glucose as a fuel. There can be no other fuel used, and. To my knowledge, I mean, if there's anything else, I'll be shocked to learn that. But thus, it, it makes sense that there are mechanisms uh, in in across all animals to 
to to make this fuel in the body. And of course, we know that there are no essential starches in the diet. We 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 can eat no starch, and and yet have perfectly normal blood glucose levels uh, forever until till the end of our lives. And and that's because the body is so capable at making it. And and that's that I would argue is because there are some cells, erythrocytes as an easy example, that absolutely rely on glucose for fuel. And thus, in a low carb state, it is remarkably dangerous to have insulin spike in any situation except for the consumption of starch. In other words, if you aren't eating the glucose, your body needs to be making it. And if insulin goes up, you cannot make glucose. Insulin potently inhibits multiple steps of gluconeogenesis, preventing the liver from producing glucose out of any other carbon source. And it makes sense. I mean, I can say this, and I suspect anyone kind of would be nodding along that if you need, at least I hope, um, that if we need the body to be making glucose because we're not eating it, insulin must be low. And, and that is what happens with a, when a person eats protein or eats fat, there is little to no insulin response because if there were, it would inhibit gluconeogenesis and thus we would become genuinely hypoglycemic, uh, genuinely hypoglycemic. I don't mean when people are hangry because they're not comfortable having their stomach empty for a few hours, but I mean like clinical hypoglycemia um, and all the symptoms that come with that. I mean, that would be the result of any person low carb eating protein, they, everyone would be fainting and getting, you know, these kind of this tense tiredness and this, these kind of shaky sweats that comes with hypoglycemia would be happening all the time. But it doesn't happen because there's no insulin response to protein in a low carb state and thus gluconeogenesis is maintained. Does that make sense? Did I explain that? Yeah, that, that makes sense to me, Ben. I'm just going to recap because, um, yeah, yeah, you please. know, obviously, you know, I, I'm, I'm a pretty good example and I make plenty of glucose and my insulin yeah. is extremely low. And, you know, it's, it's been a bit of controversy about what's going on. And I've got my own opinion on that. And it's, it still remains to be seen what the answer is. But, you know, does what you just said about that, does that hold true for all people in all situations? Are maybe some really bad diabetics that are metabolically wrecked, do they fall outside of that range? Is there some, is there some, is there some wiggle room in that, in that thing about the hypoglycemia? Or, yeah, you know, yeah I think have, there yeah. is. I think there is some wiggle room. Um, Sean, where it, it can go either way. You could have some people that may have an exaggerated glucose response or an insufficient glucose or insulin response, I mean. But that would pr- that may also, in fact, be related to a glucagon response where um, – let's just – one example that comes to mind is the potential for someone to have had previous liver damage and thus have something called glucagon resistance. If someone has glucagon resistance, which is real – um, especially in the wake of some previous damage to the liver, um, like cirrhosis or through lifestyle or through infection, um, then you have a deficiency in the ability of the liver to produce glucagon when it should, like, for example, a low-carb state. That could be someone who tries to adopt a low-carb diet or goes on some fast, and they start just feeling horrible you know all the signs and symptoms let's say of hypoglycemia but in their case it could even be worse because they if glucagon is deficient and it's signaling you also have an inability to to fully activate ketogenesis and now you're not now you're not only going to be deficient in glucose but you're also going to be deficient in the only other fuel the brain can use which is ketones so there's a particular neurological or central nervous system concern in someone who goes low carb with an underlying and perhaps unknown 
you know, glucagon resistance, which again is usually um, just liver damage. And but, I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that you know our our knowledge about glucagon levels and resistance are, are probably not dialed in in all populations yet. So so I would say you know probably we don't have great data on glucagon across the board. If I'm if I'm speculating. Oh, I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. Yeah. Now the, my in, my even mentioning glucagon resistance that's published that's out there in humans, but this is very um, I would say it's very uncommon and or um, really poorly understood. What would you, I mean, and again, we, we kind of touched on, but if, if somebody were to be theoretically glucagon resistance, what would you expect their, their pattern to look like? You know, just yeah, in response yeah. to a high protein meal or a high fat meal or a high carb meal, how would that look to you? Yeah, it would probably, um, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't be very comfortable, frankly, where uh, at any given state in, in someone who's low carb fed, um, whether eating, you know, fat or protein, uh, there is an increase in glucagon in those states, and that that's an expected increase in glucagon in order to support not only gluconeogenesis, or not support, but to signal, to initiate gluconeogenesis and ketogenesis. Glucagon is relevant in ketogenesis as well, and that matters again because those are the two fuels the brain can use, and and just the body in general. Um, but the brain, of course, relies exclusively on those two. Um, but in someone who is glucagon resistant. You may uh, you may not have an insulin bump, uh, and I don't think you would if they're low carb. But you wouldn't have the glucagon bump, and, and it appears that that is essential to maintain normal glycemia and the helpful bump in ketones that you need in a low carb state to keep the brain, I suppose, adequately fueled, or just even the muscle, you know, or the, the rest of the body adequately fueled to spare glucose for any tissues that actually need it. So in the person with the glucagon resistance, and I've talked with some people who seem to check this box where they suffer from migraines. I mean, the first time I ever started thinking about glucagon resistance was someone mentioning their frequent migraines and then me mentioning the data from the 1920s, as early as the 1920s, where it found that if you put someone in ketosis, their migraines depending on the actual source of the migraines, can be fully resolved. And this sounds almost too provocative, like I'm some snake oil salesman. But this is, in fact, quite old research uh, that's fascinating and worth looking at. Um, but nevertheless, uh, in her case, uh, her migraines uh, got worse. Uh, fasting and going low-carb exacerbated the problem. And so she had this really kind of genuine helplessness, and she had cited uh, an earlier hepatitis infection and whether that might be a problem. And at the time, I just sort of scoffed and thought, oh, what are you talking about? You know, you're just trying to think of an excuse to not go low carb. And yet, I very quickly found human-published research that suggested previous hepatic infections could induce glucagon resistance. And in that case, low carb is going to be very difficult and, and to the point that, you know, I don't know what the person would do. They, they're, I would almost say there is, in fact, a, probably a, a genuine reliance of the in the diet on glucose to some degree at least as much as i hate to say that yeah it's interesting because i don't know if you follow this i know there's a guy named jimmy moore who's pretty famous in the low-carb world and he recently did an experiment where he went on a sort of a high protein low fat version of a carnivore diet and he kept feeling hypoglycemic and you know he has a long history of you know chronic obesity potentially you know non-alcoholic fatty liver disease at some point is it possible that, you know, his repeated bouts of hypoglycemia after a high protein meal have to do with glucagon resistance, perhaps? 
Yeah, and it could, yes, absolutely. It could absolutely have to do with glucagon resistance, but it could also have to do with some underlying remaining insulin resistance and, and a chronic hyperinsulinemia, to be honest, where um, when, I, when I first spoke about this, uh, the, the idea that we really do need to emphasize uh, a protein on a low-carb diet, I kind of, maybe in an effort to just be diplomatic, but hopefully because of a genuine scientific um, justification, if someone comes into a low-carb diet in a severely not severely, but just a metabolically compromised state where they have some profound underlying hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. It, you know, there may be some justification to scrutinize protein to some degree, but I would say that in Jimmy's case, I wonder if it went too far, where from what I understand, he was eating, you know, like the leanest cuts of chicken. You know, this was just the leanest of the lean cuts of meat. And I don't think that's, uh, prudent for humans. I think in my in in the case of, in Jimmy's case, which was a really prominent example of 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 what maybe kind of can go wrong, where it sounded like he was checking the boxes of genuine hypoglycemia. I suspect, like you'd said, it could be underlying glucagon resistance. It could still be an underlying insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. Now, mind you, I'm saying insulin resistance, and someone could say, well, then insulin shouldn't be inhibiting gluconeogenesis. Um, or ketogenesis, and yet that's something that insulin continues to do in the liver, even in insulin-resistant states, But um, with ketogenesis at least. Uh, but even still, it could be that in Jimmy's uh, instance, he was focusing too much on protein, that maybe it would have been more prudent to up his protein a little bit, um, but still keep a good amount of fat. I mean, still let fat be a primary part of the diet, um, whereas he swung to you know, uh, protein being the most prominent macronutrient. And, and I don't know, you know, I don't know whether that would have been, whether that was wise in his case. Well, I know, you know, Tim Noakes is, is often quoted saying, you know, the human diet, you know, the ceiling for a chronic human diet is about 35% protein. And I mean that, you know, when I look at what I eat, that's roughly what I eat from time to time. I know that like bodybuilders for sure, you know, they'll go higher protein, lower fat levels, and they'll do that for a short period of time to, to, to cut down. And, you know, again, to me, you know, I will maintain that guys getting down to 6% body fat is just not a natural human state. And most people, when they get there, they don't feel very good. And so I think when we have to talk about, because a lot of people are always asking me, how do I get cut? How do I cut? And I, I, gotta, I have to say, let's talk about normal human physiology versus what your, your aesthetic goals are, because they don't necessarily yep. line up. And I, I think, you know, if we even look at old, you know, pictures of indigenous tribes, they were lean. <laughs> But they weren't walking around like they're gonna they're gonna jump on a bodybuilding stage. You know, they're sitting at you know 10, 12 percent body fat typically, and I think that is probably, you know, where most humans function the best and probably feel the best. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Oh, I, I love that you're bringing that up, and, and maybe I, I'm so enthusiastic because just last night I had a conversation with a friend who's done low carb and just lost a remarkable amount of weight. Feels amazing, but just complains about these kind of stubborn last 20 pounds or so. And and he's saying, you know, I really want to get down to 10% body fat. And he's a big dude. And I said, holy, 10%. I said, that's, that's pretty low. Why do you want to do that? Well, I just, I really, you know, I just want to do it. And I said, you know what, that might not be feasible. And I said, how do you feel? I've, he said, I feel better than I have in 20, 30 years. And I said, dude, can, can you just think about what you just said? Uh, and, and, and just remember why you're doing this. It's not to slip into some speedo. It's it's to just live a better life. For me, low carb is not about um, 
you know, stripping my shirt off any chance I get. Low carb is I want to be a healthy dad and I want to be a healthy grandpa. I want to go skiing with my grandkids. I want to be able to wrestle on the floor with my grandkids someday. And my oldest kid's 11. You know, so I got a long game in mind here. There's so much more than what your percent body fat is. So yeah, I, I feel very strongly that be mentioned um, just because that may be in some, maybe some listener, they may be, if, if the goal is a percent body fat, I'd say that's probably not the right goal. Yeah, I think there's, again, there, there's, a, there's a point where you say, well, obviously that's too much body fat. We, there's tons of, you know, associational data, so that's not a good idea. But I think getting too lean is, is just, uh, just out there. Interesting, I just, I just got off the phone uh, earlier today with a guy, you know, I don't know if you know who Charles Poliquin is. He is a uh, world-renowned strength coach, and he just called me up and he said, man, I really enjoy what you're doing. Um, you know, in my experience in training, and he's trained like 800 Olympic athletes. He's trained all these top-level people in the, in the world, and he says, you know, Protein, getting enough protein is essential for performance, uh, you know, and I think we've got this. I don't know, you know, let, let's talk about, let's talk about mTOR a little bit because, you know, we, we talked yeah. about this before the show and when there's, there's this sort of concern that, you know, IGF, IGF-1 is going to be too high, mTOR is going to be too high, we're going to get cancer, it's going to shorten our life expectancy. Talk a little bit about the science where that's based upon and how you interpret that and how do we, how do we take away some sanity of that and, and, and not be scared to eat a, you know, to eat a ribeye steak? Yeah, yeah. So the fear, from what I understand, not that I have my finger on the pulse of this, uh, but from what I understand, the the initial fears of mTOR with regards to cancer is that in various cancer models, cells and some rodent models, if you block mTOR, you mitigate cancer growth. And that has been extended to just a, a general fear of protein and its role in cancer. Uh, and yet, I, I am, I am with with all with genuine respect for the people who are weary of mTOR and thus weary of protein. Uh, I am weary of cancer with the family history, having lost uh, my mother to cancer when I was just a boy. I have a very healthy respect for cancer and a fear of of it personally. Um, but in fact, that's partly why I adhere to a low carb diet. Um, I. Uh, it, it's it's when when people try to invoke mTOR and, and avoiding mTOR activation as some cure for cancer, I am unaware of any human cancer, um, any documented human cancer, or, or maybe any cancer that is because of an mTOR mutation. You know, any cancer cell has arisen; it has it has mutated and 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 become resistant to death signals and and developed a selective. Um, a growth advantage over neighboring cells. Uh, it is the it is the result of multiple, usually dozens, upwards of ninety mutations that have all kind of happened together in this just absolute terrible lottery, you know, genetic lottery, where all of these mutations have happened to allow this really particular advantage. You know, the cell has enough mechanisms to defend itself against mutation and if it's just one or two even a handful of mutations the cell can accommodate that and make up for it um but when it's dozens of mutations then you've got a problem and i'm unaware of mTOR being one of those mutations now mTOR is a signal that tells cells to grow and so it is impossible for someone to develop any sort of muscle maintenance let alone growth if mTOR is not activated and so for me, I would just say I'm waiting to see the data that this um, sort of cyclical 
um, these moments of mTOR activation in the wake of someone eating protein can, one, not only cause cancer, but two, that there is some selective mTOR activation in a cancer cell um, when someone eats protein. What we do know is that you eat protein, you do get mTOR signaling in the muscle, and you do not get mTOR signaling in an adipocyte. And so there's even tissue-specific mTOR signaling that is promoting this overall favorable phenotype or body recompositioning where protein is activating growth in muscle, but it is not activating growth in, in adipocytes let, or let alone cancer cells if there be any. So I, I don't believe a, a fear of protein because of a fear of mTOR in light of some supposed cancer growth. I don't think that's justified, uh, frankly. And I know of no human data that would really um, nail that idea down. I can only think of, uh, like, uh, like very readily, um, as you'd mentioned, I can only think of examples in nature that, in fact, refute that quite explicitly, that exclusive, um, you know, heavy protein consumption diets, heavy protein diets. I don't know of instances where um, that confirm that across animal populations, and other than these rodent models that are inclined to get cancer when you just look at them wrong. Yeah, that's an important concept. And a lot of the rat studies, I mean, they've got these genetically bred rats that will, you know, they'll develop cancer. You have the winds blowing from the east instead of the south, you know. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, exactly. And, they, and then they'll also, you know, feed them a lot of, you know, cancer-promoting drugs to, to ensure that happens. And so it's not a, by any stretch of the imagination, a, a, a normal situation that humans would face on a, on a normal day-to-day. And, then, you know, again, there's, like cancer, there's a gazillion confounders that are going to that are going to affect affect those types of things. Um, let me uh, ask a little bit about uh, just in general from a metabolic machinery standpoint. What what are what do you see the advantages of low carb versus high carb in general from a mitochondrial standpoint or just overall metabolic machinery? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, you bet. So uh, low carb, I, I came to the low carb realm. Um, well, I guess reluctantly. There's no better way to say it. Uh, I I was the I had been schooled in this classic mindset, this very dogmatic um, paradigm of fat being um, the dietary devil and saturated fat. Well, that's just the lowest level of of hell, um, and there's nothing worse. I, I very much was schooled in that sentiment, and 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 very much sort of preached it in my own. Um, circles and 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 i don't know that i adhered to any particular i I, I was weary of fat just like everyone else and and i was just sort of naturally lean and and considered that to be proof positive that this was the best way to do it and and then around uh as i during the course of my phd really in, in bioenergetics my my whole focus was insulin resistance and that was the beginning of me well, the beginning of the rest of my career, in a way, of, of really focusing on insulin resistance, me appreciating what insulin resistance was and the scope of it worldwide being the single most common health disorder in the whole world. And and then its relevance to virtually every other chronic disease, what I like to call the plagues of prosperity. You look at any disease of civilization, and I can guarantee non-infectious insulin resistance either explicitly caused it or it is exacerbating it. And, and I, there, it just goes from every kind of organ, you know, from neurological problems, gastrointestinal problems, musculoskeletal uh, fertility problems. Insulin has its hand everywhere. 
And so around eight or nine years ago, when I began preparing lectures to start teaching a class as a professor, I wanted to focus on my strengths. And, and I teach all the pre-med and nursing students. I teach pathophysiology. And, and of course, Sean, you would have taken pathology in your first year of med school. In pathophysiology, we just focus a little more on how the organ or the tissue is acting rather than how much it looks. So, you know, it's not taking a sample and looking at it, you know, histologically. So I, I wanted to kind of focus on my strengths and, and try to find ways to bring up insulin resistance in these chronic diseases just because that's all I kind of knew anything about. And I just couldn't believe how frequently it kept coming up. And then that was when I started looking at human data and seeing that, wow, holy smokes, uh, a low-carb diet is outperforming a low-fat diet in virtually every human clinical study. That was the loss of innocence for me. That was the beginning of, of, of the end of my, of my naivete. Um, and, and then uh, – no longer it was me that's when i said i'm not i'm never going to let someone tell me what's right no more textbooks i don't have a textbook in my class it's just only peer-reviewed literature i um didn't no more am i going to believe any uh, organization american heart american diabetes american cancer they're no more qualified than i am to make conclusions based on science i have the same degrees they do you know, terminal degree. I'm just as capable as under at understanding published literature, and I have access to all the published literature. I said I'm only going to believe what I can read in peer-reviewed articles, and that was where it all fell apart. And, and then, in a way, I started building up a stronger foundation um, and, and developing an idea based on data, not dogma. And that is really liberating. But to answer your question, I came to the conclusion that metabolic health hinges on insulin and sensitivity to insulin insulin being able to quickly do what it needs to do and then get back down to basal levels fasting levels as rapidly as possible that in a way is my definition of metabolic health and that is very very much relevant to mitochondrial health in not only publications from my own lab but of many others we find that as insulin is chronically elevated at least one molecular mechanism is that insulin is promoting what I could call lipotoxicity. And, and by that, I mean it is telling tissues like skeletal muscle, which has, of course, tons of mitochondria. That's why it's so richly red. Um, we, uh, it's telling muscle to start accumulating a lipid called ceramides, uh, which is a type of sphingolipid. Most people wouldn't know about it, and, and that would be okay, of course. Um, but ceramides begin to explicitly alter mitochondrial function where it's forcing the mitochondria apart, forcing this state of mitochondrial fission. It's increasing the degree to which the mitochondria are producing reactive oxygen species. So oxidative stress, free radicals uh, production is going up. And that means it's using oxygen less capably to produce ATP, which is ATPs the, you know, you guys know this of course, but ATP is the energy um, the molecule that that gives the cell the ability to work and do what it needs to do, including muscle contractions. You're not going to have any muscle contractions if you don't have sufficient ATP, and and that is compromised uh, in this high insulin state. And and so, insulin in in this route, at least chronically elevated insulin levels, it is uh, compromising the cell's ability to promote mitochondrial production or biogenesis and to optimally function. The mitochondria aren't functioning well. So for me, it all, it begins and ends with insulin. But 
I would say there's there's kind of the other side of that, which is um, kind of just a, a plus, where if insulin is in control, in other words, low, you are a body is absolutely lipolytic. In other words, it is catabolizing fat as a primary source of fuel. That is just what's going to happen. No arguing that. No debating it. If insulin is low, the body is burning fat heavily. In fact, maybe so heavily that it's making ketones. And then ketones we know, which can start to go up. Ketogenesis goes up as insulin goes down um, because you lose that inhibition of insulin. And then as you're making ketones, ketones appear to be doing a lot with regards to mitochondrial function. In fact, we're just about to submit a paper. I just sent it around internally to the other co-authors to review it. But we have studies from muscle cells and rodent muscle that when we have increased ketones, it's not only reducing oxidative stress in muscle, working muscle, but it's also promoting muscle cell viability. Uh, and that's – I don't know that anyone's ever published that. And so if we find that ketones are promoting the survival of muscle cells. Let me just – again, because we talked about before, blood ketone levels are different than intramyocellular ketone levels. And so you're saying the ketones have to actually make it into the muscle. Uh, I'm assuming yeah. to, to see that, yeah, so, that's that sort true. of thing. Well, that's true. Yeah. Now, Sean, I've never thought about teasing those two things apart. Um you know what you know what would be the difference between circulating ketone versus intramuscular ketone that's that's a good point um i don't know i don't know how valid that is um uh but but i've never thought about it to be honest so we are uh, what we did find though i guess to sort of lend some support with the idea that that they are that that there's no um problem there it's that we we saw in the rodent animals where we were inducing ketosis, we weren't, you know, forcing the ketones into the muscle. We just increased ketones, and that was presumably sufficiently altering muscle bioenergetics that we found differences in oxidative stress outcomes in the rodent muscle too. But nevertheless, your point may be valid, um, albeit one I've never considered, that is there a rate-limiting step or is there some inhibitor or kind of gate master on the muscle cell, like insufficient... Um, transporters, because there are explicit transporters for ketones to move from blood into cell. You know, that's that's a good point. I don't know how that's affected. Yeah, yes, because I, I was looking at, you know, glute, glucose, as you probably know, it depends on a number of different glucose transporters. I think there's 12 of them named, and I, the one in the muscle, the glute 4, is pretty yep. typical. But there's other ways to get glucose into cell. You know, muscular contraction can can induce some some, yep, some right. glucose into the cell. So there's kind of interesting things but with that. But it's still through glute 4, interestingly enough. It just has an insulin-independent backdoor. So where insulin activates GLUT4 translocation, um, uh, uh, muscle contraction through increases in calcium and increases in calcium-related uh, enzyme, it, it still it makes GLUT4 kind of open the same. So it still uses GLUT4 just different. It kind of goes the back door, as I call it. Yeah, so it'll be interesting what the, you know, eventually with the ketone, looking at the ketone receptors and how that, how that plays out over time. Because, yeah, again, you're seeing... You're seeing, you know, people that have high ketone levels, and 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 maybe it's getting the ketones where they need to be is is the issue. Right. Yeah. And then and then eventually getting to the point where they're effectively used, and that is not something we teased out. We just simply found ketones are promoting an overall favorable uh, metabolic milieu within muscle, you know, promoting survival and supposedly enhanced mitochondrial physiology. Just to circle back, I mean, because you talked about, and I'm sure you're probably aware of a guy named Grant Schofield out of New Zealand. He, he published a paper a couple of years ago. I think he called it the unifying theory of chronic disease, and he, and he squarely put the target on the back of hyperinsulinemia. 
what or insulin resistance, what do you, in your opinion, and I know it's going to be multiple factor and it's going to be depending, but what, what do you think are the prime drivers of insulin resistance? Is it just eating too much carbohydrates or are there more things? Is it, is it the, uh, is the, is it the vegetable oils? Is it, what do you think's going on? Why do we, why are we becoming insulin resistant? Yeah. Oh, what a great, that's a great question. So yeah, it is no doubt it's multifactorial, no doubt. And, and I would say I submit that some factors are more relevant than others. But if I kind of came up with a brief list, um, I would say uh, of, of, of this small list, um, oxidative stress causes insulin resistance, no doubt. Um, we know that that's very well established. If you, can, if you can mitigate reactive oxygen species production or enhance antioxidant defense, you can um, change the redox status of the cell and promote better insulin signaling. So that improves insulin sensitivity. So oxidative stress is a cause of insulin resistance. Inflammation is a cause of insulin resistance. And this is very likely where seed oils would come into play, promoting an overall very pro-inflammatory environment. And then as inflammation comes into play, we now have um, the production of these lipotoxic intermediates, like I'd mentioned earlier, ceramide. In fact, all of my postdoctoral fellowship um, not all of it. My, my main publication was finding that inflammation through any cause, in fact, m- multiple causes, um, promotes the accumulation of ceramides. And then ceramides are deliberately uh, kind of attacking the insulin pathway in cells and causing insulin resistance. Um, but then I would say, uh, uh, and other than those, environmental uh, pollutants, uh, which, which uh, uh, toxins, you know, I almost hate to say the word toxin because people interpret that in so many ways but it, it kind of like, connotates cleanses you know <laughs> yeah i know I, exactly and that's why i hate to mention it i hate to mention the word toxin because it's so misunderstood but in this by this i mean an environmental molecule that harms the body um, whether it's ingested orally or inhaled like cigarette smoke or diesel exhaust particles um, ethanol could be con- like from alcohol that could be considered one um, but those can uh, also alter um, insulin signaling and then lastly the elephant in the room, insulin itself, uh, where hyperinsulinemia, I would pro- I would submit is probably the main driver of insulin resistance in most people, where and that would very much come back to what they're eating. As someone's eating a high starch diet, that is going to be promoting almost constantly elevated levels of insulin. And like I said earlier, where the the particular tragedy in our environment is in our world is that someone goes to bed at ten o'clock having just eaten some starchy sugary snack they they wake up you know eight or nine hours later you know six or seven o'clock in the morning probably seven and then they eat a starchy meal (laughs) right when insulin was coming down a few hours earlier right when ketones are about to start coming up ah well well then let's just bump them right back up you know bump the insulin and glucose right back up and then because we're told to eat six or seven times a day then they eat their starchy food, they eat a starchy snack two hours later, a starchy lunch two or three hours later, a mid-afternoon snack, anyway. And, and their, their insulin levels are chronically, you know, every waking moment is, is defined by an elevated insulin level. And that hyperinsulinemia causes insulin resistance. We know insulin, hyperinsulinemia causes insulin resistance. And that is just a fundamental biological principle. Too much stimulus elicits a resistance to that stimulus whatever it may be across i I think any organism if 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 a chemical pathway is chronically turned on the the organism will turn down its sensitivity to that pathway whether it is alcohol whether it is drug whether it is a hormone in the body 
we become resistant to that stimulus and, and insulin is no exception. So I would say the main factor is diet induced chronic hyperinsulinemia as the main cause of insulin resistance. And then once that's happening, <clears throat> that is just, like I said, that, I mean, that's now you, you've stepped through the door and all that awaits you is weight gain and all the plagues of prosperity. Zach, so, I'm going to, yeah, Zach, just, oh, sorry. I'm going to ask you one more. Cause I, I just got so much time. My brain is just, you know, jumping around listening to all this stuff. But and, and when I was in medical school, physiology was, was by far my favorite subject. I, even uh, I'm glad to hear that. Well, even though I was doing orthopedics and you know, ended up you know breaking, you know, hitting stuff with hammers, I really enjoyed physiology <laughs> yeah. and did well in physiology. But you mentioned you know oxidative stress and mitigating reactive oxidant species, and we talk about antioxidants. And can you talk a little bit about endogenous antioxidants and their efficacy and how that's regulated versus? Do we need to eat all these super berries with you know rich in antioxidants we we take into the digestive tract and, and the efficacy of those things? Yeah, what that's a great question. So we know that a low carb diet increases glutathione, and glutathione is the main component of the main antioxidant molecule, glutathione peroxidase. I mean that's sort of the 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 main line of defense when it comes to defending the cell against the uh, oxidative stress. Now. That is, of course, as you said, an endogenous. That is the cell making its own defenses against oxidative stress. And that is so important because our fear of oxidative stress and, and, and this, this kind of rise, this cultural interest in antioxidants, it, it, that can, in fact, in and of itself be pathological. We have a lot of human data to find that the overconsumption of vitamin antioxidants like vitamin E or vitamin C being common ones – those, in fact, can increase mortality. So people taking high levels of those things are more likely to die. And there, so there's a this sort of this J-shaped curve in the, in the case of that. So uh, I, I would say th there's a concern of with with um, focusing too much on exogenous or, or you know eating your antioxidants, um, where you may be pushing the cell too far. Where we need oxidative stress. You 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 can't. In most cells, at least, maybe all cells, I know explicitly some cells, if you don't have sufficient oxidative stress, you can't have cells differentiating. And so you're keeping them in this undifferentiated state that there has to be a certain amount of oxidative stress to allow the cell to differentiate. In other words, have a developing cell become the cell that it needs to become in order to function in the body. If you don't have enough oxidative stress, it can't do that. So there's a downside to attacking oxidative stress too much. But that's why it's best, I submit, to let the cell dictate what it needs. Give the cell the building blocks. Give the cell the, the material that it needs to make its own antioxidants. And then, in, you know, and then in some cases, maybe, you know, maybe I'm, I'm being diplomatic here. Maybe there's some justification for taking an antioxidant um, vitamin you know, or whatever, it would, a supplement. But that isn't going to be as optimal as you letting your cells make their own antioxidants. Yeah, I just uh, I want to rewind just a little bit to kind of touch on what we were talking about before when you kind of mentioned the short list to insulin resistance or developing insulin resistance, and it was you know the chronic elevated insulin levels uh, through just kind of repinging that system through starches and refined carbohydrates and the sort. Um, and then on top of that, uh, like inflammation and oxidative stress kind of being yeah. elevated as well. Um, is it, 
fair to say then that like the oxidative stress and inflammation uh, result of the metabolization of a carbohydrate is high enough when compared to the breakdown of fat and used as a fuel source that you know it almost kind of works works in synergy with mm -hmm. the, the, the increased or the chronic spiking of the insulin to kind of almost be the trifecta in, the, in that regard? Yeah, that's a great question, Zach. I, I, I can't. So um, I know that just at least comparison of glucose to ketones, um, and that's not, that's the only comparison I can cite, uh, at least scientifically. Um, glucose produces more reactive oxygen species than ketones do. Now, I don't know how that compares with the oxidation and then ultimate catabolizing of, of, of a fatty acid for fuel against glucose. But in that case, yes, that would suggest that the, the metabolism, the well catabolism of a starch would not only be promoting insulin elevations, but also oxidative stress. I mean, then inflammation, I don't think so. I, I don't think a starch consumption, well, at least glucose consumption would be promoting inflammation. Um, uh, at least in in the organism, unless someone has a sensitivity to it, of course, uh, which can happen. You know, my 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 middle daughter, my middle child, she has this very bad reaction to oats. Where her she gets sick when she eats oats, for some reason, not wheat, mind you. Um, uh, I did. You know, my kids would be sniffing uh, goldfish crackers if I let them. They're so addicted. You know, every kid goldfish crackers are like crack cocaine to little kids. Um, but they. Uh, starches, you know, I don't think would be overall promoting an inflammatory environment. Now, however, that doesn't mean certain carbohydrates do. For example, fructose, we know fructose increases LPS absorption, LPS being a toxin from the gut, um, increases LPS absorption from the gut into the bloodstream. Now, someone who's really informed is hearing me say that, and they're saying, well, hold on, Ben. If you're invoking LPS absorption from the gut, in the case of fructose consumption, which, of course, fructose, half of sugar is fructose, they say, well, then you need to acknowledge that consuming saturated fat can also increase LPS absorption, and that appears to be true. However, the flip side is when you eat saturated fat, you may be absorbing more LPS from the gut, but you're also producing more of the molecule that gets rid of the LPS, which is LDL cholesterol. That lipoprotein, one of its functions is to neutralize LPS, bind LPS and excrete it through the liver into the bile duct and get it into the intestines to be wasted from the body. And so if saturated fat is increasing LPS, and that I do mean if, um, then it's also providing the solution. Fructose does not do that. Fructose only increases LPS absorption, which would absolutely be promoting inflammation, but it does not provide the exit uh, uh, route for the LPS at the same time like fat does, saturated fat. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, fructose, because when I was doing some research on this, looking at, you know, the formation of advanced glycation end products, you know, fructose was shown to be something like 15 to 20 times more prone to do that than glucose, which I thought was just kind of an interesting. Yeah, you're exactly right. Yep. Yep. And that's that almost sort of defies some sense because you're thinking, well, how can that be an advanced glycation end product is by its definition uh, an amino acid that has been glycosylated. So glucose has forced that reaction. And yet. In the case of fructose, like you said, we do have this enhanced production of advanced glycation end products, and that's not glucose at all. Yeah, and, and so, you know, it always goes back to we've got all this high fructose corn syrup, which is, you know, 55% <laughs> – 
I think it was it 55% fructose and, and yeah, 45% yeah. glucose. So that's interesting. Let me uh, let me just again because you you have such a good uh, knowledge of insulin resistance. How do you currently define diabetic pathophysiology? Yeah, so are we talking type two? We are. Right? Well, you can talk both, but I mean, type two is obviously the one that most of us are going to be affected by, and you know, it's kind of a, you know, and even there's some thought with the type one stuff now. You know, if it's an autoimmune disease or, or the things that that cause that potentially is a leaky gut potentially. So it's kind of interesting, but yeah, let's stick to type two because that's, that's probably the main player that most people are dealing with. Yeah. So type two diabetes, uh, of course, is at its very foundation, insulin resistance. It is simply insulin resistance that has progressed to a point where their own insulin is no longer sufficient, even though it is elevated several times over normal, their own insulin is no longer sufficient to, pe- to keep their blood glucose in control. And then the great tragedy is that it's only at that point where uh, where they are now defined as having a clinical disorder, where you know the the, the physician uh, with with nothing but the best of intentions is is not really paying any attention to the insulin and and the ins- and thus the underlying insulin resistance and is only looking at the glucose. So this person is becoming progressively insulin resistant, uh, and, and this may be manifesting. With you know skin disorders, they can have dark patches of skin or little skin tags on their armpits or the back of their neck. They will have hypertension, and, and, and they're just overweight. I mean, it's almost a guarantee, I would say, that if you're overweight and you have hypertension, you're insulin resistant. But nevertheless, the, the physician or the health practitioner is looking at the glucose levels and say, well, it looks like they're getting a little high, getting a little high. Uh, but But the tragedy, of course, is that behind the scenes, insulin has been raging for 10 or 20 years. And, and then it's only when they're so insulin resistant that now their glucose starts to climb, well, now we diagnose the problem. But unfortunately, we diagnose it as a glucose disease when, in fact, type 2 diabetes, at least, why well, even type 1, I would say these are not glucose diseases. These are insulin diseases, and, and, and they're exact opposite, of course. But it's unfortunate that we treat a type 2 diabetic like we treat an, a type 1. And whereas a type 1 diabetic truly does need insulin as a therapy – I submit that giving a type 2 diabetic insulin is, is one of – all you're doing is ensuring that that patient will die faster than they would otherwise. Yeah, I mean, and you, you're echoing, I, I think, some of the work that, that you know, Dr. Jason Fung often talks, talks about that, how, how tragic yeah. it is to give insulin to someone whose problem is too much insulin. Uh, you know, you kind of alluded to, I guess, some of the work maybe Joseph Kraft did that Ivor Cummins is going to probably talk to us a little bit tomorrow when we have him mm-hmm. on. Uh, and so it's kind of neat how all this stuff, all this stuff, kind of interweaves together, and you see this big picture forming. You know, the, the, the stuff about the LDL. You know, what is the function of LDL? We had Dave uh, Feldman on the other day, and, and he yep. was talking about, you know, what is LDL actually doing? You know, what it's doing his job. Is it high? Is it low? You know, is it conditional? And you know, there's we know that LDL has an immune. You know, a, a cholesterol has a function in the immune system. We need it for certain things. It, it goes into re- reparation of you know damaged cells. You know, there's so many reasons it's there, and so. You know, when I see these, one of the bigger problems I see with just the way we look at medicine in general, because in a lot of cases, we're just in a hurry. And we've got these lab associational markers that are based on these huge population studies. And we try to put everybody in that same box. And there's no, 
it's not that the doctors are bad guys. It's just they don't have the time and the and, and sometimes it's not the training or the sophistication to to sort of think about what's really going on physiologically to put those things into context where it's much easier in that eight minutes that you have to assess your patient to check a box, say, yeah, that's high, here's your drug or here's whatever treatment and send you on your way. And it's just, it's, it's, it's almost, I won't say it's criminal, but it's a shame. And, you know, I, I wish we all had time to spend, you know, time learning this stuff and truly understanding the physiology because it, it really all comes down to physiology in my mind. Yeah. In fact, uh, Sean, I like that you said that. So once upon a time, I, I kind of raged against you know the average physician sort of thinking you know how dare you treat this so poorly, um, and, and yet you know shame on me um, that uh, we only know what we've learned, and 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 a physician, the way the system works, and not that I even want to blame the system, but but I guess there's no other way better way to say it. The system, if they haven't learned it as a part of their education, why would they even think? to look into this and and the physician doesn't get paid to do that you know as as for me as a scientist i have the you know how smug of me to think that when my job i do get paid to to find those kinds of answers that's my job i mean if i'm not teaching or i'm not in my lab with my students doing some experiments i can sit in my office and just ask myself questions like how is insulin resistance caused and what is what how is insulin resistance relevant to type 2 diabetes and then i have the privilege of concluding that it's in fact insulin dependent not glucose and but the average physician they don't get paid to ask questions like that and find answers to those kinds of questions uh, they get paid to see patients and that's just the way the system works and so even when you have a, a physician who can be familiar with this uh, this isn't a simple conversation. You don't just pat someone, a patient on the back and say, hey, control your insulin. I'll see you in two months. I mean, that's a long conversation. And, and the system doesn't really suit that sort of communication in most instances. I mean, I mean, hopefully more and more people can find ways to do that. And, and uh, In fact, I am most excited when I get invited to do talks at like grand rounds events you know where, where or, or some you know physician meetings at, at local hospitals and clinics i love those because i'm thinking hey I, i'm now providing this explicit information to some health practitioners and policy makers well at least health uh, hospital administrators and they can leave with an appreciation of hey i'm going to measure insulin in my patients rather than just continuing to focus on glucose and i that has yielded results i've had physicians contact me in the wake of me giving some local talks to doctors offices and clinics and them say hey i've started measuring insulin and let me tell you what happened to this patient and this patient as we shifted the focus on controlling insulin um, rather than controlling glucose um, because if controlling glucose is the priority then you don't care what insulin levels are then you're giving them insulin or you're giving them an insulin secretagogue, a medication that'll force the beta cells to make more insulin. And you don't, you don't shrug, you don't care about the consequences as much, or you don't know about them because all you're thinking is, well, insulin's in, or glucose is now better so that we must be solving the problem, little knowing that in fact we're making it worse. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things is the system is set up to treat lots of people kind of okay. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> and, a good and, you know, and, and you know, you, you take care of a lot of people. Okay. But you don't do a really good job <laughs> for, 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 for people. And I, I think that's, you know, I, I, you know, I think it's, again, there's a lot of people, we got too many damn sick people as a problem and yeah. we don't have enough resources to deal with it. We've got to, we've got to get this prevention stuff. I keep harping about this. We've got to put 
tons of resources in prevention, education, and you know, have people come into your house and teach you this stuff because it's it's doable if we, as a community, decide that's where we want to put our priorities. But you know, as you know, there's the people that write your textbooks and pay for your textbooks. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of conflicts out there. There are, yeah, and the people who are sponsoring the the you know the main dietetics organizations and. I mean, there's we can't be so naive, and this is a different topic, and I don't mean to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but we can't be so naive to think that some people benefit from kind of keeping the messages mixed. Yeah, Zach, you got, I mean, this is this has been just total. I've been just so glad we got you on there, Ben. It's been totally enlightening. It's tons of good information. I think there's so much more there. Uh, but until Zach and I get our float tank and our archery range, we're not going to be able to do three-hour podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we, we maybe we can maybe get you back on down the road and see how your next paper comes out. And you know, if if you're if you're okay with that, I, I know the the audience is going to love this. I know I, I'm I'm going to listen to this a couple times just so I can you know take in everything you said. But Zach, anything yeah. else? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks thanks again for coming on. I mean, it, it has been uh, a big knowledge dump, which I think is is great. Uh, I, I do have one other question. I kind of want to go full circle back to protein. Um, because like in the sports and performance kind of realm, it's been kind of a common like, uh, assumption or understanding that like, you know, post-workout, uh, you want to have this like three to one ratio of carbohydrates to protein. Um, and then similar to that, like that there's this kind of magic number of around 30 grams of protein that, your body can actually like process at once before it doesn't have like a system to really deal with the rest. Um, and it was always my understanding that that's kind of where this whole idea of frequent meal feedings came from. Like, you know, the bodybuilding world where these guys are trying to get in a lot of protein, but they're trying to get it to be actually utilized. So they went to these like frequent smaller meals so they could kind of retap that 30 gram thing over and over again on a more regular basis. Um, but it's been my understanding, if I've been understanding it correctly, is that in the presence of kind of a high fat diet, uh, that kind of thought process of this like kind of magic number of 30 grams is not as relevant. In fact, with the, in the presence of fat, you can maybe actually utilize a higher amount in one sitting, um, which would be partly why maybe sometimes in the whole high fat realm, people tend to gravitate to more like big, less frequent meals. Mm -hmm. Um, and do you know, is that partly or uh, entirely just due to the increased need of gluconeogenesis that like that extra bolus of protein is it actually going to be utilized to like restock liver glycogen levels as well as take part in like the muscle um, repair? Oh man, Zach, what a question. My goodness. So before let's, I want to, I'm curious though, <clears throat> you, you, you have uh, a totally different perspective on on the origins of frequent eating than I do. I'd never considered uh, that the, the dogmatic thinking of you need to eat six or seven small meals per day as uh, being born in bodybuilding. I actually thought it was more a result of that's what you have to do when you're treating type 2 diabetics with insulin um, to avoid the inevitable hypoglycemic bouts, kind of the rebound hypoglycemia. Um, so I, I wonder if your your perspective may in fact may uh, be the more correct perspective. Um, nevertheless, um, the the upper limit of a of a one time protein bolus uh, that could um, I don't think there's a hard line there. In fact, I'd be surprised if it's 30 grams for Sean, 30 grams for Ben, 
30 grams for Zach. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably much more a function of body weight, uh, to be honest. And in fact, I think Stu Phillips, which you guys have got to get on here at some point to talk protein, uh, at, if he's, he's a scientist at McMaster. I mean, I consider him uh, really the authority on dietary protein. Um, I think he found that an optimal dose or, or one-time kind of bolus was uh, – oh, geez. It was like a half a gram per kilogram or something like that as sort of this optimal um, kind of range, um, which is going to go above your 30-gram limit. And so I don't know if – I could be a little wrong there. Um, but there isn't um, – a very good review article was published about this uh, not too long ago describing that uh, the actual time frame – for you know optimal kind of post workout kind of recovery or you know pre when you're getting your protein and when is it best and they found that there was no like magic window after the workout that i think in their analogy rather than a window it was like an uh a barn door that it was like a 12 hour window kind of before mm-hmm. or after that if the person consumed sufficient protein it was sufficient you know there was no problem in did you get it within 30 minutes um, and but but that that kind of thirty minute or so window, despite the evidence refuting that, there's just a certain amount of appeal where you know you look at your swollen muscle um, that's swollen because of the enhanced blood flow, and you just think, well, of course it's going to take up more protein right now, and that's going to promote recovery, and and yet the data just don't really support that 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 there's no magic window you know within an hour or 30 minutes or so post workout that as long as general protein is sufficient in a in a diet then you're good to go yeah and, and, and sorry i got a comment guys it's such a good topic and I, and I certainly have an interest in this i've been training for my whole life yeah you know Stuart phillips yeah i'm very familiar with his work and i'm, I'm definitely thinking about asking him to come on because i think he's a great resource for for this type of stuff and so i think both you guys are right with it with regard to what's what what drove this continuously five six seven eight meals a day and i think again part of it is the snack food industry telling us we need to eat every three yeah. hours but yeah. from the bodybuilding community i think there's some perception that you know because a lot of those guys will shoot up insulin you know that's 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 yes. one of the ways they cheat. And so they think that frequent meals will, will do the opposite of what we're talking about. They will stimulate insulin repeatedly. And so maybe eating seven, eight small meals a day of 30 grams of protein, you're getting an insulin spike every time. I don't know how realistic that is. What you know? Does every small meal produce uh, you know a, an insulin spike? You know, and again, maybe you have to couple of carbs to do that. So that would be kind of an interesting thing from a, from a bodybuilding standpoint. Again, I, we're, again, we're stepping out of normal human physiology whenever we talk bodybuilding, but I do think the physiology nonetheless is is interesting and, and relevant. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and and so this the question is then, is is six small little insulin bumps have a greater anabolic effect in muscle than, you know, two or three, let's say, larger insulin bumps, you know, is the sum effect comparable? And, and, you know, I don't know, I have no idea. Uh, But, but if someone is in fact abusing insulin, um, to, to, to try to maximize or exploit its anabolic effects in that, in that non-diabetic, they're going to have to eat more to just simply prevent hypoglycemia and or death. You know, they're going to get, a diabetic shock, where if you've artificially increased your insulin levels by by overdosing by accident or deliberate, um, you do run the risk of of a diabetic shock, where 
you're not only clearing the blood of glucose as you're pushing it into all your tissue, especially muscle, which by mass is going to be the main consumer when insulin's up, but you've also absolutely clamped down ketogenesis and you've told the liver, stop making ketones. And now that is an unnatural state where both glucose and ketones are low because normally if glucose is low, well, then insulin is low and thus ketones would be elevated. And so now you've deprived the nervous system of its only two fuels. And of course, then in that case, it'll be lights out. In fact, I use that exact situation of a bodybuilder abusing insulin as one of my case studies on one of my exams for my undergraduate class to highlight that exact situation. Yeah, I remember when I was training, and I remember there's a kid in the gym was talking about using insulin. I thought you are just absolutely stupid. <laughs> oh yeah, you're messing. I just saw, around I saw with the, I saw the potentials for that. But here's the other th- the other thought, you know, and and I think when we look at these protein feeding studies and we talk about optimal dosing, I think again, like we talked about ramping up metabolic machine like to get into ketosis and get better at using keto, keto ketones. I think there's an analogous situation going on where if you chronically only eat one to two meals a day. You know, you're a lion or, or any other species, you know, like a, like a wolf can put down 22 pounds in one sitting and they won't eat again for a, for a, for a week. And so mm-hmm. I think mammals and humans and other animals have that capacity to upregulate and downregulate our efficiency at extracting uh, big boluses of protein, you know, versus small frequent boluses. So I think it depends on the chronic adaptations that have occurred. And we know that bigger meals will, you know, over time will show will end up with delayed gastric, you know, uh, transport time. So you'll have more time, spend mm-hmm. more time sucking out those nutrients rather than, you know, a smaller meal might have. So I think, again, a lot yeah, of those things point. are skewed towards, you know, we're going to take the typical college kid that eats, you know, three meals a day and four snacks and put them in the study and say, hey, what's the optimal protein time? And yeah. I, think, I think you can't, again, you got to look at the, the, the same populations to make those assumptions. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And, and moreover, there's more than just insulin involved, of course, when it comes to muscle. You know, there are other anabolic signals that are, of course, highly relevant. Perfect. Wonderful. Zach, anything else? Because we got to get we got Michaela Peterson coming on in a few minutes. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm good to go. But uh, like like Sean said, it would be a be our pleasure to have you back on down the road to do some more deep dives. Got, yeah. In fact, we didn't talk about mitochondrial and coupling and how that's different at fat cells or muscle cells and the benefit of it happening in fat cells and not muscle. So next time. We can. We've left a lot in the tank. Yeah, I know we have. We got all the stuff with brown fat, and I'm sure you got all kinds of other mad experiments going on. Hey <laughs> exactly. Ben, where where can people find you? What do you got coming up on the schedule? I know you're probably on the on the lecture circuit a little bit. Where 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 can people find you on both social media and finding you in person? Yeah, so you know, I don't. I'm not on any sort of circuit at all. That's something that's just never happened for me, and I don't mind. Um, but I am active on social media, and, and that is because I do have, like I said, it is my great privilege of getting paid to ask questions. And so what I like to do is share the answers. And so what I'm, what I do on social media, I don't, you know, I'm not posting pictures of what I'm eating or, you know, my, my cute kids. I, I just post articles, um, the, the latest, um, research articles that have been published within the realm of low carb insulin resistance, um, uh, ketogenesis. Um, uh, that's, that's, that's what I do. So someone can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Bickman PhD and Bickman is B-I-K-M-A-N no C Ben Bickman PhD and then my, I have a public profile page on Facebook just Benjamin Benjamin T. Bickman Excellent well, we'll, we'll link to those in the show notes as well so folks can kind of head over there uh, if they want to check out more Sounds and, great And Zach and I Zach we've got a, a way for people to ask questions for follow up and, and would you be willing to answer some of those questions Ben if somebody shoots yep. some stuff Yeah you bet Yep you guys awesome. send me send me whatever any questions you think I can help with uh, I'd, I'd be happy to happy to be involved 
Well, wonderful. This is this has been an outstanding, outstanding discussion, and I'm so happy we had you on. Thanks again, guys. I appreciated it. It was fun. All right. Exactly off the off the air, Ben. That was. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram, where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967. That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R, 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.